0: Well, good morning, hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. As Jay said, I am Jim, one of the pastors here at Emanuel, or at Emanuel, see, it happens to all of us, wow, my first church was Emmanuel. Emmanuel Baptist Church in Jane, Missouri, okay? So, I have a lot of things I'm going to be referring back to my past. So, well, if you have your Bibles, I think everyone has a Bible, hopefully. If you don't, be on the screen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41 this morning. When I share with somebody my testimony and tell them how I came uh, to know Jesus, or if someone asks me, you know, when did I start to follow Jesus? I always like to tell them this one little tidbit about my testimony. And that little tidbit is this that I wasn't raised in church, I didn't grow up in church. So I didn't have the privilege to go to Sunday school. I didn't have the privilege of learning all those Bible stories that you learn in Sunday school about Jesus. I I just, I wasn't afforded that. So I didn't learn about Jesus in Sunday school. Now some of you did grow up in church. Some of you did, did go to Sunday school and you learned all those Bible stories about Jesus. You learned about Jesus as this meek, mild guy who tossed children up in the air, petting lambs as he did that, and his long, perm brown hair was waving in the breeze all, all while he was doing these things. You know, that picture that so often we see in Sunday school as a little child, that picture of Jesus is really amazing. It's an amazing picture. But I missed out on that picture of Jesus. That's not the Jesus that I came to know. When I came to know Jesus. The story that we have before us this morning in Mark chapter 4 is a totally different side of Jesus than that tender side of Jesus that some of you learned in Sunday school. Now, this side of Jesus that we're going to look at today, this side of Jesus is every bit as important to our relationship with him As that other side of Jesus, that tender side. And the side of Jesus we're gonna look at today is the fear and awe side of Jesus. In fact, without the fear and the awe of Jesus, you would really not find that tender side of Jesus that precious or that comforting in your life. Now, I wanna make something very clear here this morning. Whenever you talk about fear, it can cause a lot of anxiousness to come up into people's lives. It can bring up anxiousness, it can bring up some anxiety when you talk about fear. In fact, some would even say to talk about a God who is to be feared is to really talk about a God who has some kind of guilt and some kind of fault inside of him. You see, the fear of God to some people is, is this really this leftover relic of this oppressive, archaic view of religion when you talk about fearing God. But let's make no mistake here this morning. Anytime you and I are in the presence of a greatness of God, when a person is in the very presence of the greatness of God, you ought to feel a sense of fear and awe. And that is exactly what we see from this passage that we're going to look at this morning, this story that we're going to look at and read in Mark chapter 4. Now, we're going to do things a little bit different this morning. Instead of reading the passage outright, we're going to walk through it verse by verse. And then, at the end, I want to give you three important implications that this story has for our lives today. And so, look with me at Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. Look what it says. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Let us go across to the other side. Now, what is going on here? Listen, Jesus has had a full day of teaching here. And when evening came, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, let us go to the other side. And the other side of what? Well, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I have a, a slide up here. Oh, there it is. I have a slide up here, and you see that Capernaum is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, or the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where they're at. They're at Capernaum. And Jesus had been teaching all day. And then when evening came, he said, Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the other side is the the other side. Now, they could have very well have just walked around the Sea of Galilee and taken the, the, the land route to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus said, No, let's go to the other side in a boat. We want to go to the other side in a boat. Now, that's important for us to know. And we're going we're to talk about that later. So, the other side of the Sea of the Galilee was really what was called the Gentile territory. That's where the Gentiles lived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, look at verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. Now, I want to just pause for for a moment here. And I want to talk about some some objections that people have about the stories of Jesus in the Bible. It used to be that people objected about these stories because they would say things like, well, these were lies that the disciples talked about. These were just lies the disciples made up about Jesus. All that he did, they were just lying. And you see, that, that objection really is not valid. It doesn't, it's kind of lost its, its steam because there really isn't sufficient, really sufficient motivation for the disciples to lie about Jesus. You know, when somebody lies... They're usually lying to get something out of it, aren't they? They lie to get some kind of power, or they lie to get some, some, some money, or, or they lie to get some kind of uh, success or, or, or some uh, prestige. But the disciples, when they lied, they didn't get any money. They didn't, they didn't get any power. They weren't successful from this. If the disciples lied about Jesus, all they got was Death and persecution when they so it's this, there really isn't sufficient evidence or sufficient motivation for the disciples to lie about these things that Jesus supposedly did. But the new objection today is that they didn't lie, but they just grossly exaggerated the things that Jesus did. They and by the time they were written down. They were more like legends than they were actual truths about what Jesus did. And so an example of that would be that the disciples saw Jesus as this prophet with some special uh, connection with God. And it got stretched to, well, Jesus is divine. Or another example was that Jesus prayed for somebody and that person got well. And so it was stretched out to be that Jesus healed that person. And so those kind of uh, exaggerations is what people say is really what the disciples did. They were just exaggerating what Jesus did back then. But what we have here in Mark is a little instance of why this is not an exaggeration. You see, in verse 36, what we have here, verse 36 is really a, it's talking about what actually an eyewitness saw. You see, when it says there in verse 36, and other boats were with them, well, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Nothing. It doesn't have to do anything. It doesn't move the story along in any way. All you have there is an eyewitness account of what a guy remembered happening that night, that there were other boats with them. And so what Mark is doing here is he's giving Peter's eyewitness account of what happened. That's what that's what Peter remembers taking place, that there were other boats that went with them on the sea. Now, look at verse 37 and 38. And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep. On the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, this must have been some storm that took place that night. You see, these were experienced fishermen. They had been on that sea a lot of times, and they had been through a lot of storms uh, on the Sea uh, of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, Galilee was prone. Uh, to storms like this one. You see, the Sea of Galilee was in a basin, and it was 700 feet below sea level. But the, the mountain range around the Sea of Galilee would reach as high as 9,200 feet above <laughs> sea level. And so when the, cold, when the warm air from the sea would rise up and the cold air would come down from the mountains, well, you can just guess what would happen. It was a mixture for nothing but a storm to arise so there was a great storm that took place i thought i'd give you a little taste of what that storm was like and so watch watch this little video quite the storm now. <laughs> that, was what, that was like the storm. That was what the storm was like on the Sea of Galilee. And meanwhile, what was Jesus doing? He was in the back of the boat asleep on a cushion or a pillow. Now, he was trying to sleep. Now, we know that his sleep was intentional because he had a cushion or a pillow. And so he, he intended to sleep when he got in that boat. You know, if I had a watched you walk through the back of those doors back there, and in your hand you would have had a neck pillow, I'd be pretty sure that you were not going to make it through this message today because you intended to go to sleep because you had a pillow. And so we see here, that Jesus is planning to go to sleep. Why? Why is he planning to go to sleep? If he knows that there is a storm coming, and surely he knows there is a storm coming because he controls the weather, then why was he planning to go to sleep? Why was he planning to sleep through it? Look, it's all a setup. He's setting the disciples up. What do the disciples do? Well, the scripture says, in fear, they wake him up with this question. Don't you care that we are perishing? Now, I know as parents, you always teach your children that there are no dumb questions. But guess what? This has to be the dumbest question ever uttered. (laughs) Let me ask you. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel this way? Jesus, we're about to die, and you've, you're overwhelmed. You're about to be crushed, and it's like you don't even care. And it seems like you're sleeping. Do you even exist? Listen, Mark records this story because that's how we often feel in life. Look what happens next. Verse 39. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, the word rebuke there is something that you do to somebody that's underneath you. Like a boss to an employee or like a parent to a child. No, you can't talk to your mom that way. That's rebuking, okay? See, Jesus stands up and he rebukes the weather like it's nothing more than a rowdy child. There's no incantations, there's no chanting, no magical words. That he, he doesn't wave his arms and say, All this, this chanting. All he does is simply get up and he says, Peace be still. Here's another thing about this phrase, be still. In the Greek language, it is called a verb of continuous action. And so which that mean, what that means is that what he was literally saying, it says, be quiet and stay quiet. So in other words, it was like he was telling a child, he was telling the storm to go get in that corner, you're in timeout. And I'll tell you when you can get up and go play. And so Jesus just calms the storm down. And the Bible says that the wind ceases and there was a great calm that took place. Not only did the storm die down immediately, but the waves, they died down also. Even if you could stop the wind out on the sea, it would take hours for the waves to stop rolling, wouldn't it? I mean, if you've ever been on a lake when the wind came up and then it just died down, the waves continued to go. But Jesus did it all at the same time, all at once. Now here comes my favorite part of the story. Look at verse 40. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why? Why? Are you so afraid? Why are we afraid? (laughs) We thought that we were going to die. And then all of a sudden, you got up and you speak to the wind and the waves, and they died down. They stopped. Why are we afraid? Well, that's why. Jesus continues and he says, Have you still no faith? Tim Keller in his book on Mark says a better way of translating this is where is your faith? It's interesting here that Jesus does, what he does here is that he connects their fear, the fear of being afraid in this situation to their lack of faith in this situation. Where's your fear? Where's your faith? I believe we all, if we'd honest with each other, We all struggle with this from time to time. We have fear in situations where we ought to exercise our faith. Paul Tripp calls this the bipolar nature of every Christian who still has sin inside. Well, watch what happens next. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. scripture says that they had great fear. Listen, when they were in the storm, they were going to die. And they felt this fear, just plain old regular fear. But after Jesus rescues them from the storm, they had great fear. In other words, the rescue was more frightening to them than the storm. See, seeing Jesus' power over the storm was more terrifying than thinking they were going to die in the storm. And then they uttered, they asked in utter amazement, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey Him? You see, this is one of three stories that Mark tells right in a row about amazing things that obey Jesus. You have this story right here where the weather obeys him. Right after that, you'll see that he commands the demons and they obey him. And then the story of Jesus healing and and commanding the dead to rise. And so, Mark points out, he's telling us in this, Mark's point is that in this story is telling us in this story that if demons and death, disease, and the weather all obey him, then why won't you and I? If demons and death and disease and the weather obey him, why won't we obey him? And so, We've worked through this story this morning. The story of how Jesus calms the storm. And we've seen a very different side of Jesus. We've seen the side of Jesus that brings a fear and an awe of him. But what does the story have for our lives today? Well, I want to give you three important implications to this story for our lives today. Number one. There is a good kind of fear that we need to possess. There is a good kind of fear that we need to possess. As I mentioned earlier, some people think that this idea of a God who would be feared is all outdated. But just think, if you think about that, that's really kind of foolish to think that way. Because how could you really understand the power of Jesus and not feel some sense of fear? Whenever anyone got a glimpse of the power of God in the Bible, they were overwhelmed and overcome with fear. My favorite example of this is John, the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Now, keep keep in mind that the relationship that John and Jesus had while Jesus was on the earth, I mean, they were very close friends. They had a special relationship. And so what do you think their reunion was going to be like when John saw Jesus, the ascended Jesus, back in heaven for the very first time? You think he was going to have a warm embrace? You think they were going to go around doing some high fives, maybe a slap on the back? Listen to what John's very words As he said in Revelation 1, 17, listen to him as I I read him. When he laid his eye, or he said, when I saw him, I fell at, at his feet as though dead. Now, that's no figure of speech. When John laid his eyes on the resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus, John literally thought that he was going to die. I feel like that we've almost lost all sense of this in our churches today. This whole concept of this kind of fear and awe, I think we've lost them in our churches today. You see, we have become so casual when it comes to church, not that we need to be rigid and strict when we come to church, but we really, it just seems like there's a, there's a real carelessness when we come to church any, anymore. And it seems like that's been even more magnified with some of the the more contemporary worship songs that we have today. You know, I'm really so thankful for Jay and Randy and others who lead us and the songs that they choose to sing, how gospel-centered they are. But there are so many new, sentimental, contemporary worship songs out there that all they want to talk about is wanting to be in the very presence of Jesus. I just want to be in the very presence of Jesus. Guess what? If Jesus would do what those songs said, and he would just show up on stage right here today, what would we be like? What would we do? We would be just like John. We would think we were going to die being in the presence of Jesus. Do you realize that if Jesus did that, What it would be like. That wouldn't be very good for church attendance, I guarantee you. Perhaps the reason why so many of us are so casual and so unmotivated in our obedience is because we have no real fear of Jesus. Listen, he rebuked the weather and it obeyed. He commands disease and death and they yield. He spoke to demons and they surrendered to him. Who are we to disobey him? We treat the commands of Jesus so casual that we say things like this. Well, I know know God wants me to do this, but uh, I'm going to do my own thing. Or we say things like, I'll get serious about obeying Jesus later. Or I prefer my preferences over the will of God. Do we really know who we're talking to when we say things like that? Who are we defying? Who are we to defy the one who commanded the wind and the waves? I think if there was more trembling in our worship services, it might do us a lot better. There is a good kind of fear that you and I need to possess. Number two, fear does not exclude love for Jesus. Fear of Jesus does not exclude love for Jesus. Whenever we talk about the fear of God, people will object and they will say things like this. Well, wait a second. We are not to fear God. He is this loving, gracious, tender Savior who plays with children. Yes, He is, but when you get the picture that we just saw in Mark chapter 4, you get this picture of Jesus in the boat calming a storm with power, it really makes the tenderness of Jesus that much more amazing. It so reminds me of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, when the children first learned about Aslan, they felt, as Lewis puts it, they felt this mixture of mystery and loveliness. And Susan asks the question, so wait, who is this Aslan? Mr. Beaver says, well, he's the king, he's the great lion, he is the creator of Narnia, its rightful ruler. Susan says, I thought he was just a man. Is, it, is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous to meet a lion. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. See, Jesus isn't safe, but he is good. And that's exactly how the disciples felt that evening. Listen, our experience of forgiveness is supposed to, in some sense... Intensify our fear and awe of Jesus, not lessen it. Look at Psalms 130 verse 4. Look what it says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So is this Psalm, is it saying that we are forgiven so that we might fear? Yes. Yes, it is. But isn't the point of forgiveness to take away our fear? If we really have been forgiven, what is there to fear? Here's the deal. When you really see that Jesus, what Jesus had to go through to save you, it makes you realize the holiness and the perfection of our God That you and I sinned against. Listen, the cross was a terrible price for our sins. It was the price of our disobedience. It was exactly what you and I deserved. It is the closest thing that you and I will ever see, get a glimpse of, seeing hell of here on this earth. But in that sacrifice, in that sacrifice, I also see that I am safe. I am safe within God's love. And that ought to move me to worship Him. Amen. One pastor put it this way. True worship is a mixture of awe and intimacy. Awe at the size of the power of God. Intimacy, <clears throat> intimacy in realizing He has paid our full sin debt and he has brought us close to himself. Listen, one without the other is a deformed theology which will lead you to a deformed spirituality which will lead you to a deformed worship. Let's face it, some of us here this morning, we have the fear. We have the fear but we lack the intimacy. We lack the love there's no love in our relationship with God. Some of us here have the intimacy, but without any sort of awe whatsoever. And as a result, we're lazy and we're casual in our obedience, and we easily compromise things in our life, and we're uninspired in our worship. Listen, true worship is having an awe of Jesus mixed with loving intimacy with Jesus. Fearing Jesus does not exclude our love for Jesus. One last implication. Those who fear Jesus need, uh, those who fear Jesus need fear nothing else. Those who fear Jesus need fear nothing else. Listen, when you realize how powerful Jesus is and that he is in the boat with you, you don't need to be afraid of anything else because Jesus is there with you. In this story, after he rebuked the wind and the waves, it says that he rebuked the disciples for being afraid. Now, for me... I mean, for him to rebuke them means that they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Now, it seems to me that their fear was really legitimate fear. I mean, after all, they were about to die. That should have been a time to be afraid, right? Jesus says, yeah, that's a time to be afraid. But when I am in the boat with you, all fear is irrational fear. You know, we have all sorts of fears. All of us have all sorts of fears. We call rational fears. I asked my home group to to help me with uh, this message. So I said, hey, I want to ask you, what are you afraid of? And I literally thought that they were more afraid that I was going to share with you what their fears were (laughs) than the things that they're afraid of. But they answered things like, well, I'm afraid of losing a loved one. I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of being a failure. Things that we we do fear. Rational fears in our life. We all have these rational fears that we deal with. But when the presence of Jesus is in your life, all fear is irrational fear. You see, Jesus was in the boat. Did the disciples really think that they weren't going to make it to the other side? I mean, Jesus was in the boat. God wanted Jesus to get on the other side. They were going to make it to the other side. Because Jesus was in there with them. Because they didn't understand the power of Jesus over the storm, they feared the storm. Had they feared Jesus and understood his power, they wouldn't have been afraid of the storm. This is kind of how I look at it. How many Jurassic Park fans do we have here today? Jurassic Park? Yeah. So you remember that scene uh, when they were underneath the dome and they were surrounded by all those raptors? I mean, they literally thought they were going to die. They knew it was over. I mean, what hope did they have? And then all of a sudden, in their despair... T-Rex comes out and he gobbles up all the raptors, doesn't he? He just eats them all up. Listen, you see, the real thing to be afraid of is T-Rex. That's the real thing to be afraid of. But what if T-Rex is on your side? Then I don't need to be afraid of raptors. If T-Rex is on my side, what can raptors do to me? If T-Rex is for me... Who can be against me? Listen. You see, Jesus is the better T-Rex. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8? He said, if God is for me, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Listen. Irrational fear and worry comes into our lives by one of two things. Either, number one, forgetting the power of Jesus over the storm or doubting his commitment to us in the storm. You see, Mark tells a story because it depicts how you and I often feel in life. We sense the storms brewing around us and it seems like as these storms are brewing, that Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping. Or maybe we look around us and the waves are swamping our boat and the boat is filling up and we're about to drown with bills, concerns in our marriage, problems with the kids, issues at work, too much to balance in life with our schedules, with school, with school schedules all these things, and we're about to drown. And you ask, how am I going to make it? And you say, aren't you supposed to take care of me, Jesus? Do you even exist? When we feel like this, there are a couple things that we need to remember and we need to do. First thing is this. We need to realize your feelings are natural. Your feelings are natural. Listen, this is exactly how, this is how the disciples felt, and they are the future leaders of the church. They had these same feelings, these same fears. But, number two, don't listen to your feelings. Don't listen to your feelings. Rather, put your eyes on Jesus and the power of, And a commitment to you. His power and commitment to you. You see, salvation doesn't come to us by getting on top of our circumstances. Rather, it's by believing God's promises in our circumstances. And finally, when you feel like you're drowning, wake Jesus up. Just wake him up. Listen, he wasn't mad at the disciples for waking him up. He got angered at the disciples for the lack of faith. He wants us to wake him up when we feel like we're drowning. Well, if Jesus really loves me, why doesn't he keep me from the storms? If he really loves me, why doesn't he just keep me from the storms? That's a very good question, isn't it? Why doesn't he? Well... You remember verse 35? We talked about it. Whose idea was it to go across the lake in a boat? It was Jesus's. Yeah. This wasn't some bad situation that the disciples got themselves into. It was Jesus's idea from the very beginning. So why did he knowingly send them into the storm? Why did he do that? Well, here's why. There are some things more important than God keeping you from the storm. That is, God teaching you His faithfulness in the storm. You see, there are certain things that you and I can only learn about God by going through the storm. Storms are His laboratory in which He can teach you about Himself. You see... Everybody wants to see a miracle in their life, don't they? Everybody wants to see a miracle. But not everybody wants to be in a position where they need a miracle. Listen, until God puts you in a place where you need His sustaining power, you will never, ever experience it. Now think about this. Every miracle that we have seen up to this point in the book of Mark, has started with a problem, hadn't it? I mean, the healing of the man with the unclean spirit, cleansing of a leper, healing of the paralytic, healing of a man with the withered hand. Now, what did all those people have in common? They had a crisis in their life or they had a problem in their life. Every miracle in the Bible starts with a problem, which is good news for those of you who are here that have problems this morning. Because you are a candidate for a miracle. God can do something in your life. If you don't have any problems, I guess you're out of luck. No, every miracle starts with a problem. And they're available for us today because God is about that business. Now, when the storms hit our lives, and they will, Jesus is going to do one of two things. Number one, he will either show off his power by delivering you from the storm, or he'll show off his power by his ability to keep you in the storm. Listen, sometimes he will look at the storm and he will say, Peace be still. But oftentimes he will look at you and he will say, Peace be still. You see, the peace that passes all understanding is not always, not even usually, His calming of the storm. But it is His sustaining power with you in the storm. This became very real to me. became very real to me in the fall of 1988. The fall of 1988, I was in my first semester of Bible college down in Dallas, Texas. I just moved my family, my two little kids, from Enid, Oklahoma, to Dallas, Texas, which was a culture shock in itself. Living in an apartment, I was working full-time at night, taking 12 hours during the day, and I was in the midst of a big, bad storm. And the waves were beating against my boat. They were crashing over the side. And I was about to drown. I remember getting up one morning. Sitting in my living room in a chair. Literally thinking I was going to die. I was losing my mind. And I opened up the Bible. I don't... I don't suggest this Bible study reading plan, but I literally opened it up and it opened up to Philippians chapter 4. And I read these words Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus I sat back in my chair after I read that and Jesus literally said to me peace be still peace Now, my circumstances didn't change. I still had 12 hours of Bible college I had to do. I still had worked full-time job at night. But there was a peace. Jesus calmed my fears. Listen, worry comes from forgiving either... The power of Jesus over the storm or doubting his commitment to you in the storm? One last thing I want to share with you from this story. You know, this story shows us why you and I should never doubt God's commitment to us. You see, the story is told in such a way that it reminds us of another prophet. One who had a similar incident with the sea. You know who I'm talking about. That's Jonah. See, both Je- Jonah and Jesus were heading to Gentile territory. Both were woken up by scared sailors who asked, Don't you care? Both um, were, were asked that question. When Mark says the wind ceased and there was a great calm, that, the, that same phrase is, is saw. We see that same phrase in Jonah when Jonah was thrown in. To the sea. Now, here's the interesting part. Jonah calmed the sea by being thrown into the sea, didn't he? Jesus, however, calmed the sea by speaking to it. Why? Because this wasn't the place or the time for Jesus to plunge himself into the sea. Listen, the sea throughout the Bible represents God's wrath in Revelation, when the evil empires arise in Revelation, where do they come from? They rise up out of the sea. It says the new heavens, the Bible says in the new heavens there will be no sea. At the cross, Jesus plunged himself into the sea of God's wrath. He would be swallowed up by death for three days just like Jonah was swallowed up by the great fish. You see, the wrath of God was terrible. It was like a raging sea that would have devoured us all. It would have destroyed us forever. Seeing that and feeling the rightful terror of the wrath of God and seeing how Jesus saved us from that wrath, it leads us to worship Him. The reason some of us struggle so much to have passion in our worship of Jesus is because we have not seen the greatness of the salvation of Jesus that He purchased for us. The reason some of our hearts are cold is because we have never felt the fear of the wrath of God and rejoiced in the tenderness of the love of God. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? when he talked about the former prostitute who came and she she washed his feet with her tears and she dried his feet with her hair and she poured out this expensive perfume. We see that in Luke chapter 7. Listen, the Pharisees objected to this. They said, why do you let her do this? And Jesus' response was, you don't understand. Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. Listen, if your heart is cold towards God, it is because you have never felt the tenderness of God's love and how great a salvation Jesus has purchased for you at the cross. The more that you and I experience the fear and awe of God, the more that we will learn to love God. Here's the thing, if Jesus cared about me and you back then, if he didn't forsake us back then, surely he will not forsake us right now. You see, he has united himself to us in our boat after all, and so he won't let himself sink He won't let us sink, and He won't let Himself sink. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. I love what Psalms 121 says, verse 4. It says this, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, He who keeps Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. So here's the real question about this story. Who got woke up in this story? Who got woke up? Not Jesus. He didn't get woke up. He knew what was happening all the time. He knew what was going to happen all along. No, the disciples are the ones who got woke up. You see, they were awakened to the great power and marvelous love that Jesus had for them. The storms in your life is to wake you up to his great power and to his marvelous love for you. And that, my friends, that ought to lead us to worship. The Lord's Supper is a time and an opportunity to just do that, to worship Him. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper here. This is a family meal. It is a meal for